Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and terrible times and awful words await us this week. Thankfully, on this show, that's kind of a good thing. Our guest is Max Booth III. You may know him better as the man behind Ghoulish Books, or for his bathroom apocalypse novella, We Need to Do Something, which became a movie of the same name. Well, he's back with a brand new collection of short stories, Abnormal Statistics. The cover alone is a good indication of the nightmares within. You should check it out. It's creepy as hell, and it more than hints at how these stories, written over a decade, focus on a particular kind of awful domestic drama. Lots of bad things happen to unhappy children in these stories. And one of the perks of having a horror podcast is that I can make statements like that without being judged. I will warn you though, this particular conversation goes into some quite dark areas. Child harm isn't something to treat lightly, and we don't at all, and we don't dwell But do listen to this with some awareness that these stories pull zero punches. As part of all of that, Max and I talk about how these tales reflect his own disjointed childhood. We talk about awful true crimes and why he's addicted to information that is bad for his brain. We also try to pin down precisely what it is about human teeth that seems so universally unnerving. It's a lot of fun stuff like that, plus some references to my favourite creepypasta stories. If you like this kind of thing, or any kind of horror thing, you can get more Talking Scared by signing up to Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, or use the link in the show notes for loads, and I mean loads, of bonus episodes and extra chat. Everyone is welcome and appreciated. But now, Off we go to a soulless hotel somewhere in middle America. The rooms are blank, the TV repeats the same movies, and something in the walls is watching you. Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Max, and welcome to Talking Scared. Oh, hello. Hello, how are you? Go Thank on, you sorry. for having. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Two podcast hosts have just uh, interrupted each other. Amazing. Thank you for having me on. How are you doing? Are you busy much? <laughs> no, not at all. No, easy life for you. So, for, so for those who don't know, you're the man behind the curtain of Ghoulish Books, which, as far as I can see, comprises a magazine, a podcast, a book festival, and now a bookshop. Is that right? Have I missed anything? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, we do the publishing company. We do the magazine. We do a book fest. We do a podcast. Uh, we do, we're in the process of opening this bookshop. Um, I have the real ghoulish tattooed on my flesh, if that counts as anything. Anything you can think of book-related and ghoulish-related, I'm probably involved. <laughs> Unless you're thinking of the uh, Ghoulish Nights uh, attraction at Orlando Universal Studios, which uh, I am not involved in, even though I believe they owe me royalties because <laughs> it's a new attraction and they use the same ghoulish green font. And I'm kind of suspicious against them. Yeah, let's bring them down. I mean, that is a lot on your plate. I- I'm surprised you haven't already murdered someone in 2023 because i'd have gone full michael douglas in falling down by now under that much pressure 
Well, I think the best homicides are the ones you don't find out about. So if I were to list my top 10 homicides, I mean, no one would even know about those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what are your top 10 homicides? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. How, um, how is the bookshop coming along? Okay, I think. Um, do you guys have Ikea in the UK? We do. Yeah, so I'm I'm a, I'm a new uh, IKEA person. I've never been in one until recently, but uh, one moved in to uh, the city a few years ago, and it's like this oasis of a place. I bring that up because I've spent a lot of time at IKEA lately buying uh, shelving equipment for the bookshop. So um, I'm really, if you have any IKEA questions, <laughs> I am the the, the perfect guest. <laughs> but besides that, I mean, it's going okay. It um. For those who don't know, it was previously a bookshop before we bought it. It opened last June, a, a kind of uh, all genres types of type of bookshop. It was called Cibolo Chicks Books because the town is called Cibolo and uh, it was operated by two ladies. So they could, two chicks from Cibolo. So when, when does it open? hopefully within the next month or two um, because between the time you and I are recording this episode and like the next month and a half, I'm also driving to Virginia to do uh, AuthorCon, Brian Keene's convention. I'm doing okay. uh, my own book fest, uh, Ghoulish Book Fest, which is in mid-April. I'm driving um, to Houston, Texas, which I know, although I know you have visited San Antonio, so you might have an idea of the distance between San Antonio and Houston. It's like a three fill hour drive. So mm -hmm. I'm going to Houston for a book event. Basically, we have a ton of events between the next few weeks. So I'm not positive if we're going to have time to do like a big open at the bookshop until all of that has uh, wrapped up. You're making me feel really guilty, Max, because I, I've been trying to start a website for my podcast for two years and not manage that, and you're doing all of this stuff. Honestly, I, th I think of myself as like supremely productive, and now I've just spoken to you, I feel nothing but shame. Uh, well, listen, the, the best of luck with it, with well, with all the cons and the events, but also with the bookshop, because, well, we need more independent bookshops. So uh, anything I can do to promote, let me know. I'll, I'll definitely do that. But... As exciting and frankly exhausting as all that sounds, I've, I've invited you on today to talk less about selling books and more about writing them. You have a new collection. It's called Abnormal Statistics, and it's out, published by Apocalypse Party. Now, I've read it. I'm so glad you're here to talk about it. But listeners, be warned, this may be the last time you're capable of feeling happiness for a while. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 these stories are something else they are weird and dark and at times extremely disturbing and um, so without further ado can you start us off by introducing us in whatever way you see fit to abnormal statistics yeah it's a collection of really uh, bleak uh, often depressing maybe sometimes funny uh, stories about Dysfunctional families, I would say. They all have a pretty uh, themed uh, line through them all of uh, families and um, how families can go wrong and how families uh, deal with messed up situations. So if you uh, like dysfunctional families, uh, this might be a collection you would also like, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you came from a dysfunctional family. You want to read a book that's like, ah, this was me growing up. Maybe there's <laughs> something relatable in that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I came from a functional family full of dysfunctional people. So um, we were very happy, but we're all fucked up in our own little unique way. So I kind of half half saw myself in some <laughs> of these characters, but we, we, we can get to a lot of that because in the interest of continuity, I said just last week to Victor Laval that nobody writes or reads horror stories to actually feel bad. Right, I I hear people talk about catharsis or challenging themselves or the reader or enjoying fear or evoking fear, but rarely do I hear people talking about genuinely making themselves or the reader unhappy. And then I read your stories and I thought, oh, Neil, you sweet summer child, Max (laughs) wants to hurt you. All of which is a kind of long-winded way of asking, what's your intent with these stories, Max? My intent, whoa, I, you know, I, a lot of writers sometimes they talk about writing for an audience and there's also another camp who write specifically for themselves. And I think maybe I'm in that because when, when I wrote basically any of these stories, I'm never thinking, ah, I want the audience to have this specific emotion. It's all about capturing perhaps an emotion I have. So my intent, I guess, is to examine my own memories from childhood and also my various fascinations with things such as, uh, which we'll get into, uh, Wikipedia articles. Um, And just, and, you know, a a lot of stories do have that, you know, you you don't want to feel bad. But I often find that isn't as authentic. Like, I've tried to write uh, happy endings, and sometimes Hmm. I have, but most of the time... It doesn't feel like the right move because that isn't. I don't know. Like if you watch a Disney movie, you can off you can often feel that like f- almost fake essence of trying to make you feel good, even though that isn't probably the most realistic feeling of events. So I I don't know. Maybe I just like to feel bad. Maybe I like <laughs> feeling like shit. It's really possible that's the case. How did you feel writing them? I know they cover like a decade, right? So that's probably a too big yeah. a question. But did you enjoy writing them? Because <laughs> I, I don't feel your enjoyment, but I'm, I'm guessing it must have been there because you, you kept writing them. I think um, on a case-by-case basis, um, it's going to be different. Um, like I'm looking at the table of contents now, and some of these I can definitely say, yeah, I felt it was fun writing these mm-hmm. and and some of them, no, it was not fun, but they will necessarily write. Like for instance, the opening novella, um, that was really much a, a therapeutic type of writing exercise about uh, an event from my childhood that I tried and tried for like 15 years to get into a book. And I was not um, succeeding until I finally did figure out a way to write it. So, for me, that one was therapeutic because I wanted to be done with that story by the time I uh, left my 20s. And uh, I have, I don't know, five months left of my 20s. So I did that. <laughs> That's out of my system now. Yeah, I can't believe you're so young because I've been aware of you for what feels like ages. And I, I assumed you were kind of my age, but you're like 10 years younger than me. And you've written a lot of stories, which kind of pisses me off but <laughs> you <laughs> one thing that comes through quite clearly is how many of your protagonists are young boys or very young men going through 
a rite of passage of some sorts. And is is that simply a reflection of your own age when you were writing them? Or, or is that a character type you're drawn to more broadly? I think it's a reflection of my age when I was writing them. I had this, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this because of the, the novella, but I definitely had an odd childhood. And I feel like maybe I, I kind of skipped my teenage yields. So I think when I was trying to like write like seriously, it I seemed to I maybe um, connected the most with a child protagonist because that my most writers they tend to use their own experience right to uh, come mm-hmm. up with something and I didn't have many experiences as a teenager and that's when I began writing like uh, seriously to try to sell things so. I think it just made sense. I would naturally uh, tap into childhood point of views. Listeners are probably sitting there now screaming, saying, asking about Indiana Death Song, because you've hinted that it's about this big thing from your... And I'm going to get there. Don't worry. I'm just trying to set the ground before we right. do. I'm going I'm to get there. Um, a lot of your protagonists are deeply lonely i suppose disenfranchised but lonely is the phrase that comes through there's a a lot of neglectful parents and hollow friendships in these stories you know like and that that's interesting to me because i love coming of age horror but coming of age horror normally the classic mode is about kids often outsiders coming together to fight evil right there's a million it derivations you know stuff like that um, they they find almost they find their collective they find their group in opposing some evil, whereas in your stories, the opposite happens. Like in a story called Disintegration is quite painless. That this very lonely child, mistreated child, finds sort of hell, been monstrous hell beneath his hometown. There's a story called Fish, which is about the worst possible way to lose your virginity I can imagine. <laughs> And in, in, in those stories, the boy in question severs all ties in favor of the monster and often murder. Yeah. When I was putting this collection together, I, um, I sent a, a, way, a way long old book to Apocalypse. And after they accepted it and we were going through edits, we kind of both discovered many of the stories had a theme. And a lot of them had to do with families yet. Yes, but a lot of them had specifically the theme you were just talking about. Kids uh, kind of embracing uh, madness and monstrous mm-hmm. over their own families. It wasn't something I had thought about much until we were going through the collection. So I would have to say a lot of this was just, I suppose, an unconscious uh, decision in my opinion when writing these. It just kind of demonstrates how... Uh, <laughs> Well, I was at the time of writing them, which I imagine was a pretty bleak place. And I do agree a lot of coming of age books and movies tend to have like an okay family side, you know, where the kid Mm. goes out and then they find something and then they have to fight it. But I don't think that's as realistic or like as relatable as a kid growing up in a bad family and looking for any way to escape. I think a lot of people could probably relate to that than the alternative. Definitely. I think abusive parents are far more likely than demonic clowns. You know, it's just that maybe maybe we write about monsters because a lot of us don't want to face up to the reality of all of that. I spoke to Mariana Enrique recently and she talked about how 
talking about horror happening to children and, and murder and death of children is is a ridiculous taboo because it happens every day in the real world, but we seem unable to face it in fiction. I remember thinking of something now when I was a teenager and began writing a lot of short stories that did involve kids uh, dying. Mm. Um, I had this epiphany because I think up until then, due to the movies and books you would watch, you would read and watch, kids didn't die that often. I always found that strange because, as you just said, they die all the time. So the idea of actually having that happen in something I wrote seemed exciting and fresh. Well, it is, it is still to this day quite exciting and fresh because it is so rare. And then when you read a collection of like nearly a dozen <laughs> stories where, you know, there's rarely a kid that goes unbroken, undamaged or unabused. It's like, bloody hell, this is this is quite the take on, on the state of the nation. I do have to say it's pretty funny that we just said kids dying is ex- exciting and fresh. <laughs> Well, yeah, 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 I know. In a few episodes ago, one guest said to me, you know, that she she said something like, I know that you really like the mistreatment of children. And I was like, if we isolate that piece of audio, I am screwed. (laughs) You know, I've already trigger warned the the foreword to this episode. So I think we can kind of be honest about these stories. And, And speaking about being honest, you include story notes, right? Thank you for that. Because as a reader... And as an interviewer, I love story notes. I, I don't understand people who don't like story notes. I don't I don't get it. Why would you not want to know that stuff? But I think considering the nature of this show, anyone who doesn't want to know the wider context of these stories is already not listening. So so that's fine. But the story notes do make it clear that a lot of these tales are drawn from some degree of autobiography which is where we finally get to Indiana Death Song, this brand new novella that that opens the collection. Now, you've alluded to it in this conversation. You say it in the show notes, uh, sorry, in the story notes. You've said it online that this is the most autobiographical thing you've ever written. Um, Having read the story, that's quite the thing to say. So I suppose, can you elaborate on that and, and maybe introduce the story a little? Yeah, so the the novella is about this kid living in a hotel with his mom and dad. It's a hotel that's connected to a casino in northwest Indiana. And from, I think, yeah, about the age of 12 is when they moved into the hotel. For reasons that will never quite explain in in the novella, although we do get a sense that the the house they used to live in is no longer... um, houseable that's not the rule <laughs> livable <laughs> <laughs> um the kid no longer goes to school he doesn't leave the hotel unless he decides to go out for a walk um sometimes they go to a pawn shop sometimes they go to cash a check or maybe to get some fast food once in a while they go to the library but beyond that he's stuck in this um hotel room and at a certain point he watches a movie called the truman show and that movie is about a guy who discovers his entire life has been a reality TV show and he did not know. And in the novella, the kid becomes convinced that cameras are also recording him at every moment, which is the only way he can explain why he's been living in a hotel for years and years. No one will quite tell him why or when they're going to leave. And 
I it's based on my own experience from the same age doing the same thing and having the uh, the same uh, encounter with the Truman Show and becoming convinced that I was also being recruited as a teenager because why else would I be living in a hotel for years and years? In reality, I lived in a hotel from 12 to 16, and I didn't go to school, didn't do anything. I um, lost contact with uh, any friends I grew up with, and well, the, ho- the novella in my life is different is I didn't just live in a casino hotel. We would bounce around from different hotels throughout Northwest Indiana because a casino hotel is really expensive. And we would only stay at that place when my uh, mom would get comps from the casino. But I changed that in the novella because it just made more sense from a narrative point of view mm-hmm. to stay at one location. And of course, uh, a bunch of fucked up supernatural stuff happens in the novella that did not happen to me in real life. <laughs> quite a lot then of the bare bones of the scenario if not mm-hmm. if not the the kind of supernatural shenanigans are drawn from your own life um what years did you say you're in the hotel ages 12 to 16 see that's a, they're really formative years like yeah ha- having that level of i don't know disconnection or or whatever dislocation that that would bring that must have been pretty tough yeah, I mean, and, uh, a big difference also from the novella of my, my actual life is in, in, in real life, I had a laptop and I spent most of that time uh, writing and reading. So the, I was, uh, the reason I always give for the fact that I was able to get published like at a young age mm-hmm. is I spent almost all of my teenage years at writing and trying to improve and reading any book I could find at the library by the casino. I think most people try to get published in their 20s, like when they really try to get serious with it. And they go through that process of getting rejected a lot, which I still do, of course. But that process of trying to find a voice and rewriting and rewriting until they figure out how to write. I, did, I, just, I think I just kind of skipped something because of my circumstances and used that time like as a young teen. Before we, before we even get to the Truman Show thing, which is fascinating, just this protagonist is unnamed in the story, I believe. He's named later in the collection, but I, is, it, is it right that he's unnamed in the story itself? Yeah, he's yeah. unnamed in the novella. Yeah. Um, he, even before you get to like his, his mental state, his, his daily life has this weird sort of dreamlike glossy feel. And the only kind of comparative I can think of is something like like a really dark sort of Charlie Kaufman movie you know um mm-hmm. like being John Malkovich or or something yeah. what's the Anomalisa which is weirdly set in a hotel you know that that kind of strange again uh, um I'm saying air a lot today Eternal Sunshine stuff like that it has that feel, but kind of like the, the horror f- twist on that, you know, really creepy stuff before you even get to the supernatural stuff, just being in that transitory, living in a box where it's just you've got one room or you go for a walk outside to see where the guy committed suicide. It's dark stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Kaufman. So, I mean, I, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and um, even some of Kaufman's stuff, I think, could be defined as um, Hull. 
in the whole genre. Like I, I always fuck up the name of this movie, but a uh, Synetiki New Year. Yeah. I find that's almost cosmic horror. <laughs> I heard someone else say that was horror and I've never seen the movie, but someone else said that it's, it's completely misread and it is a horror movie. It was some podcast I was listening to. I can't remember which. I've gone on a different podcast talking about that being a horror movie. So it's really possible. <laughs> <laughs> been, you, we might have come full circle. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of weird stuff in there. Part of it, is is this thing about teeth? Teeth play a big part in Indiana Death Trip. Um, the protagonist sucks on them for various reasons, and by by them, I don't mean his own teeth, other people's teeth that are no longer in their mouth. It's it's truly horrific. And I mean, this is a, a question that's perhaps a bit unfair to throw at you, but what do you <laughs> think it is about teeth that? that seems to set us all universally on edge. Because it's like the only section of the skeleton you see, right? Everything else is hidden by flesh except the teeth. That is an excellent answer. I I thought you would kind of waffle a bit and come up with some kind of pseudo-philosophical answer. That is a brilliant (laughs) answer. Yeah. I mean, skeletons are terrifying. (laughs) Have you thought about skeletons much? I I don't like them. They just hide in you, and you never get to see them unless you smile, right? And, And then one day you die, and the skeleton is set free? I don't know. I've always found them unsettling. Those are great... Uh, Shield Silly by Ray Bradbury called, I think, just Skeleton or The Skeleton. And mm-hmm. the guy becomes convinced that his skeleton is trying to escape his body. And I don't know. Maybe that's going to happen. Well, there is a, there's a great story by Gemma Files as well about a, um, a pandemic of people bursting apart from the inside where a body inside them bursts <laughs> its way out. And yeah, it's kind of the same thing. But no, teeth, teeth, man. It, there's something about them. It's like, they're like it's like a universal horror. There's a, a there's weirdly like a, a, a middle grade book by a writer called Ali Malenenko, who's a friend of the show, who has written this teeth scene that's just horrendous. And then there's the the Channel Zero monster that's just all teeth. Mm-hmm. And there's there's something about it that's just because there must be a reason you picked teeth as the thing he plays with that is just so disgusting. <laughs> no, I'll get into that in just a second. But also going off of why everyone is like so connected the teeth i mean also it's one of the few things that detach from us right so maybe yeah. that has something to do with it um with the whole teeth thing in the novella um i didn't have any <laughs> real life thing though i sucked on teeth that i can recall but when i was writing this novella i was obsessed with this image in my head of finding a dead body and then taking the jawbone and putting it inside the the guy's mouth as if he had a like a new thing of teeth on his teeth but i didn't quite understand if that was uh possible so i just made i just kind of simplified it by having it be uh, loose teeth and with the sucking on them and the stuff that happened as a result of sucking on them i'm not sure where that came from it just kind of made sense in the moment of writing it but I, I have a difficult time of explaining the logic to it whatsoever. It's not, I guess it's not a book uh, based on logic much. No, it's not. It's, it has got a weird sort of dream logic to it, which I, I liked. Um, towards the end, I'll get to talking about potentially creepypasta, but it, it felt like that for me, like some of the best old school creepypasta that I've read in a while. Um, but to stay with teeth a second, right? There's a line yeah. in Indiana Death Song. Uh, and I'm going to condense this a little to quote you, but you write, quote, the point of this pro, this is sorry, the tooth sucking. 
The point of this process is not to feel good, nor is it to feel bad. When you suck on these teeth, you learn things. You understand truths. Now, I specialise in smug overinterpretation, but it's hard (laughs) not to read that as a metaphor for these stories. You suck on them and you learn things. Yeah, I I wish I could say that was an intentional thing to advertise a collection, and I'm going to say it. It's not true, but I'm going to say it was intentional. Say it. Say it. You're welcome. Because that's what it feels like. You know, like like in the books of blood, when all the stories are written on the... um, so the, the, the narrator's skin or, or Bradbury's yeah. illustrated man where the tattoos tell their stories. I started thinking of these stories as teeth that people were sucking on. Because in, in Indiana Death Song, when he sucks on the teeth, he, he has certain access to information about people. And I started reading them as, as little teeth that were being sucked clean by an unspecified narrator, maybe an unspecified reader, maybe even me. Um, and I'm, I'm going to stick to that, whether you say that's what it that means or not. That is such a good, that's such a good idea. I need to rewrite <laughs> the intro to this book immediately. <laughs> there you go. If I've done one good thing this week, it's that. Um, I'll send you one of my teeth. Yes. And I, I will put it on my desk in a glass jar and I will put it next to books when I do Instagram posts. Um, <laughs> speaking about meaning though, I saw a tweet the other day where you said that you've had the first responses from early readers telling you what they think Indiana Death Song means. And that interested me in terms of what it means, because I didn't really think of it as a story that that had or, or necessarily needed a meaning. So, I mean, is there one? Or, and has anyone got it right? I mean, that's a strange thing to say about that story, I think. Um, I have no like deep meaning built into the novella that was intentional, but I mean, so uh, someone, a few people have emailed me this idea that I can't exactly get into on the recording, but if you want, I could tell you and then we can just remove it. Sure. Right. Yeah. I don't see that. I think. Yeah. No. Something was, <laughs> something was redacted there listeners, but we think it was wrong anyway. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but that that thing about truths and you know you you learn things you suck these teeth you learn things one of the things that i loved about this collection is how it sends the reader scurrying to wikipedia right and you said yourself that you love wikipedia in one of the story notes you say that your brain craves things that are not good for you and i i feel that deeply it's that for me it's that fascination aversion contradiction that I think is the basis of most horror. This kind of like an underlying threat that what is known cannot be unknown and that it might change you. I mean, I came up with the, t- the name of this collection because I was thinking about this, this obsession I have with Wikipedia articles, but a specific kind. And those are the ones that uh, contain uh, abnormal statistics. That's how I came up with the collection title. Oh, cool. But like, for an example, like a list of people who disappeared, <laughs> a list of uh, kids who have committed homicide and list of familicides and so on. And I definitely began reading those when I was living in the hotel. And I think looking back, maybe the reason I was so fascinated with them is being a kid who was alone and isolated it was nice it was almost pleasant to read about horrific things happening to 
evil people, way more horrific things than what was happening to me. Like it felt almost comforting in a strange way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I, I don't tend to read too many nowadays as I did as a teenager, but absolutely like the, the many, many nights I would stay up just reading about the most gruesome things possible on Wikipedia has probably shaped my brain. Yeah, I've spent far too long on serial killer Wikipedia in the past. I used to, I used to I used to genuinely worry that people would consult my reading history and like <laughs> and I used to have this nightmare that like something would happen in my hometown and then someone would read my Wikipedia history and think I was responsible for it because I was clearly a sicko. So I was reading about Ed Gein when I was like 13, you know. It could still happen. Well, you, I mean, you asked me right at the start about my favourite homicides. You hear, you hear how quickly I shied away from that question? Um, <laughs> but but like the, thing, the, the first thing I went to Wikipedia to consult from your collection is this Truman Show syndrome that you mentioned. So to recap, the protagonist in Indiana Death Song has it. He thinks he's in a TV show. Um, and you say that you kind of had it. And was it like an overwhelming sort of delusion did you really think really think that that was what was going on well looking back now i i would go through these phases of not thinking that was true and phases of absolutely thinking someone must be watching me there's a scene in the novella where the kid sits on the uh on the window the open window and loudly states he's about to commit suicide so if anyone wants to stop him you better like stop production and come out and that is directly taken from something I did as a teenager, just trying to find ways to make production come out and tell me like, oh yeah, this is, you will correct. This is just a TV show because at a certain point, I mean, I imagine it's probably similar for those who like get isolated in prison. You know, you just stay in the same room, the same thing happening over and over and over for several years. And you come up with different, um, like explanations. So, so yeah, it was something that happened to me. I don't think it was, it, it wasn't like a, a nonstop thing, but it, mm -hmm. once in a while I would convince myself, this is what's going on. How far, was it, this might be a weird question. This was it a frightening thing or was it a reassuring thing? I think it was a reassuring thing because mm. at least that would offer like some type of rationality to the the unexplainable because in the novella and in and in real life like we will never give in like a concrete explanation for why we were living in a hotel although later on I if I had to guess we uh just lost it due to uh, not having any money to pay <laughs> for anything due to gambling you know because i wonder if that that truman show thing because it is a, a recognized syndrome now i've i now understand it it does it, it feels kind of indistinguishable from a, a kind of religious experience you know where all of a sudden rather than believing in god as the orchestrator and and the one who's kind of at the end of the day gives meaning to your existence it's like believing in the the studio exec but it's the same sort yeah. of thing it's it's a framework outside yourself that both contains you and takes care of you you know i i, so I wonder if if i wonder if you hadn't been a, a kid growing up in your particular circumstances uh, at a time when we were you know 
surveillance capitalism was everywhere and reality TV was everywhere. So it seems like The Truman Show is a particularly apt delusion for people as old as me and as young as you. Um, I wonder if it, if if you hadn't had that particular mix, you may have had a kind of religious epiphany. Yeah, I may I may have seen Christ in a like a stain on the wall. Maybe who yeah. knows? Yeah, Instead, just... I I just believed the studio with Zach was watching watching over me. <laughs> but I have never understood how more people don't read the Truman Show as a horror movie because. It's every bit as paranoid as The Matrix or Rosemary's Baby. I mean, it yeah, is... I mean that's how I view it. I mean, there's some good comedy bits in it, but it definitely it's definitely terrifying. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I can probably like tell you scene by scene what happens in it uh-huh. because I was so obsessed with it as a kid, and I didn't even realize it was like this documented uh, syndrome until I was writing the novella and I was just googling around and looking up the movie because of how it affected me that I discovered oh yeah this has affected many people it's like that pandora thing when um when avatar came out and they they diagnosed this pandora depression that people had because they this, the, the worry that they could never go there that was a thing people oh, yeah. got really depressed because they knew they could never visit pandora you know there is a matrix syndrome where people believe that that's true so it is it, it more and more it does feel like popular culture is infecting our brains perhaps a little more than we give it credit for that brings us somewhat depressingly to your story video nasties which comes it kind of comes like a sucker punch late in this collection so i was reading it and i'm like okay i've got comfortable now with the register of these stories i'm all right i can endure these and then you hit me with video nasties which this is not bullshit Max is one of the few times recently where I've really thought I just don't want to turn this page. I don't I don't want to know what happens next. Um sadly I do know what happens next because I it basically it's based on the murder of James Bulger, which is a mm-hmm. a, a story I know about all too well. We, we we should perhaps tread lightly here, but the story yeah. does bear discussion. Yeah, Video Nasties is the the true story of these two young boys who abducted a small child from, I believe, a shopping mall. And they did some pretty heinous stuff to him that ended with the the child dying. And then the two boys will, um, I believe, just put on this really well um advertised i don't think that's the right rule it was i it was fairly scandalized right it was all i the way i take it it was all over the newspapers and tv they well i think the youngest children um can uh, at least try to feel homicide maybe even still to this day i don't think i hope not at least i don't but the age record hasn't been broken and that's how i found out about it was by reading wikipedia about it was a list of the youngest children convicted of homicide and they were on that and i got obsessed with that story in not a good way with just a oh this is extremely bleak and fucked up and i can't stop thinking about it and that is what led to me writing about the the events because often if I can't get something out of my head, it means I need to um, exercise them from my brain by writing 
about it in a story of some kind, fairly similar to uh, Indiana Death Song, although in this case, this was not anything that happened to me. It was just something I couldn't stop thinking about as a teenager. I think I wrote, I think I eventually wrote this story when I was 18 or 19, but I probably read about it when I was 15 or so, and it's pretty uh, fucked up. I mean, when did this happen? Were you um, a kid when this happened? I can't recall. Yeah, so I would have been about 10, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 93. But what basically happened is these, these two 11-year-old boys abducted a three-year-old child from a, a, a shopping center, um, and they, they murdered him. Oh, it's horrible. It's, 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 it's one of the most abhorrent crimes in, in British history. And it, it's kind of almost taken on a, I, I don't want to use the word iconic because that sounds too celebratory, but it's taken on this, yeah. you know, morbidly iconic sort of place in the annals of British crime as kind of like the lowest of the lower. And, and the, the, the boys who did it, I think one of them is now out of prison, but the names have been changed. And, and every time they're mentioned in the press, it, there's this absolute, outrage about it over and over again so it, it just gets recycled in the british press um every few years as a new story about it uh it's it's awful um and the reason i guess that you call your story video nasties is because a lot of it was blamed upon the fact that they mm-hmm. had seen i think famous of the film was child's play 2 that i think it was child's play what's it yeah it was maybe it was two it's either two or three but now i'm yeah yeah which i can't think of a more innocuous horror movie you know mm-hmm. um it's not like they watched salo you know what i mean or or, <laughs> yeah. or hostel they what they watched child's play and and then they went and committed these crimes and it it reignited what's called the video nasties route in the uk where in the 80s a lot of films were put on this no watch list M- the majority of them ridiculously because um, they fit a certain criteria in some tenuous way and they were banned. It's a ridiculous sort of cause celeb, but it got reignited by the Bulger crime. Um, and you call the story video nasty and you intersperse these horrible scenes of what these kids are doing with brief descriptions of classic horror movies. Um, yeah. And I'm still trying to work out whether you are implying that there is a link between the movies and the crime or not. No, I don't think I was implying. Well, maybe I did accidentally, but it wasn't my intention that there was a link because I don't think there is a link. But also, I was really young when I wrote this story, so trying exactly to remember what was going through my head when I wrote it is not the easiest. I imagine was I wrote this story, and you know, most of the trial was about these video nasties, so mm-hmm. it just seemed like a good idea to also throw in these scenes to maybe make the reader think what they thought, you know, because the whole trial is, do these movies cause that? And I don't think so. And I think I even have some snippets from the, the trial. Well, I think a loyal says like, uh, frankly, Lionel, this is complete bullshit, <laughs> but I'm struggling now to recall exactly yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, no, I, I think it's just an excuse for conservatives to um, censor movies. They see a thing in the news and they go, "Oh, well, may how how do we how do we use this to help us?" Did you have any any concerns about putting that story 
in the collection. I'm not saying you should. I'm just wondering whether you did because it is such a dark story. Um, no, I don't think I did because I feel like everything in the collection is bleak. Although this one is probably the most fucked up one. Um, if I had written it today, I think I might've been a bit more um, subtle with some of the details because it's pretty Mm -hmm. abrupt and in your face, but I do find that it's a good, um, artifact of one of my earlier pro propane stories. I think it was my second pro payment i ever got so it does hold a special place in my help because of that and also mm-hmm. it was published in an anthology uh, no a magazine called jma vu it, the magazine only existed like five issues but what i thought was pretty cool was it came out in the debut issue and coexisting in that issue was an essay by Hill and ellison also about video nasties so i always harman ellison yeah yeah he uh he was doing a column for that magazine and they happened to line up i don't know if you read my story or not but i've always found that pretty cool well the reason that is insanely cool from my perspective is i've made a note to ask you whether it was in any way inspired by harlan ellison's story the whimper of whip dogs no that is a really weird piece of uh synchronicity though have you read the whimper of whip dogs i think so is that about the um the woman being attacked outside yeah the kitty genovese case yeah yeah that's what Uh, yeah no i read that after the fact because the guy who edited the magazine um paul michael andelson he told me about this story after he accepted it and i went and read it and yeah it does have some similarities to it Oh, that that's that is honestly my eyes went wide then when you said that because I I'd made a note to ask I was literally reading the the name Harlan Ellison when you said that <laughs> um, yeah for those who don't know the the Whimper of Whip, Whip Dogs is a fictional retelling of the murder of Kitty Genovese who was a woman who was basically murdered in broad daylight while screaming for help and no one helped her and it has a it's nowhere near as grim as as your video nasties but it it has that same sense of bleakness I think is the word you know that it, you really do just not want the story to reach its denouement. It's a great story. It's a fucking great story. I wish I could write as well as that, man. That story specifically is amazing. And probably if I had like, no, it's probably what I wanted to accomplish with video nasties. But mm-hmm. It's a weird thing though, isn't it? That when, when we are younger, we do tend to go for the throat more. Is it, do you think, was it almost an attempt to, I don't know, shock your way into success I, I often think because i used to do that i used to do like i would go so far when i was young with anything i was doing i would try and shock and i i don't know if shock into success is the right way to put it but shocking yeah i mean i was a kid who i mean we feel going to the hotel and whatnot my friends and i would spend most of their time like in a basement looking at rotten.com so i mean mm. and watching like faces of death so that's yeah. the type of like upbringing I had was shock websites and shit like that. So I don't think you'll fall off by saying, yeah, I probably was going for some type of shock effect with this story that has become, I think, mill restrained as I've gotten older, which I think is probably true for everybody. Well, I think what throws that into quite stark <laughs> relief, actually, is that the second in my eyes, the second darkest story in the collection is one of the most recent, and it's called Every Breath 
is a choice. And it's so mean. <laughs> it's just a mean story. Um, yeah. But it does feel like you have, when you compare that to Video Nasties, it is much more subtle. Almost all the violence happens off the page or in implication rather than, you know, in, in front of our eyes. Uh, but it is still like just a horribly mean story. I mean, can you talk a little bit where that idea sprang from? Because it's sadistic. I wish I could. I think I wrote it a few years ago. I never sold it any place until fairly recently. I sold it to an anthology, I think, last year. But I had written it several years before then. And I think, basically, I don't know how, but I came up with a scenario. Um, like, what would happen if a guy had to choose between his wife and son and uh, chose his wife and let his son die? And <laughs> how would that play out with the relationship of the husband and wife? And it seemed it seemed really mean. It is really mean, but it seemed also seemed too like <laughs> like exciting in a that's fucked up way, not mm-hmm. to explore. And yeah, it was, I don't know where the idea exactly came from. Other than one day, yeah, the scenario popped in my head. Well, it, it's weird because that idea has popped into my head so many times, not as a story to tell, but it's <laughs> a, 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 a weird mental game I play with myself, and I have done for. For years and years where I've kind of taken, never my wife because she would win, but, (laughs) and I don't have kids, so I don't have that problem. But I have this, this thing about like this friend or that friend, who would I save? And for some weird reason, rather than it being an attacker with a gun to their head, it's always that they're on pieces of rock which are slowly melting into lava. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know why. And I have to save one of them. And it is, it's just a really weird thing to think about. And then when I read it, I was like, oh my God, you've read my thoughts here. Because this is the the ultimate horror scenario, picking between two people you love. Well, I mean, it's probably something that's universal, right? Everyone has mm-hmm. that thought, I imagine, of like, who would I save? And I just happened to write a really mean version of that. Because I think the the common answer would be, oh, I would save my child. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to be the common answer. I wanted to explore what happens when you let the kid just die and then you have to try to have a relationship with the woman you saved, which obviously is not going to go well because, you know, the fucking kid just died and she's going to blame you. Yeah, yeah. It uh, has a kind of inevitable, grim conclusion, which... Maybe the one time, though, that I smiled in the collection, actually. I think it's the, perhaps the one weirdest kind of fist pump moment imaginable at the end of that story. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. These are brave stories, right? But perhaps the bravest thing you've written, in the story note to Each Breath is a Choice, you say that you would be hard put to choose between your wife, Laurie, and your dog. <laughs> <laughs> I do love my dog. <laughs> Has she seen that note? <laughs> Yeah, she uh, she filmatted the collection actually, so <laughs> she did. Well, what, I was actually quite impressed that you you don't do bad things to animals in this story in these stories that much. You do terrible things to people, but the animals tend to be okay. Yeah, um, I guess I'm not interested in making dogs feel pain. Well, yeah. any animal for that matter. I do 
feel like maybe it's a cheap way to go often because you see it happen so often. Oh, mm-hmm. the animal only exists to manipulate you into uh, feeling something, only for them to kill the, the animal, which, to be honest, is every stealing exists to manipulate you somehow, right? But mm-hmm. I feel like animals is too common. Yeah. Yeah, the, the person who does it really, really well, and I hate him for it, is Stephen Graham Jones. Um, but the amount of times yeah. I have to just skip pages, I can't handle it. Yeah, can't <laughs> handle it. You just, just kill the nearest person instead. Um, but is it true that you started writing to help you deal with the death of a dog? Yeah. Um, my earliest memories involve of writing involved trying to cope with the death of a dog when I was really young. I would say probably seven if I had to guess, but I never know how people say, yeah, when I was this age specifically, <laughs> I did this yeah, because yeah. my memories just don't look like that. I would, I would guess I was seven. Mm-hmm. A dog, my dog died and I was really close to that dog. And I believe I was already doing, um, I was trying to write stories then, but I don't, have many memories of that but i do recall once my dog died writing like these eventuals of myself and my dog just doing various things like the one that stands out (laughs) my dog and i in the woods my dog gets kidnapped by this mad scientist uh, fox who lives in a tree and demands i go find all these uh supplies the fox needs to uh destroy the planet <laughs> so that was um that's one of the earliest uh, stories i can re- recall writing as a kid but yeah so maybe that has to do with the f- why i don't have many dogs getting injured in the stuff i write the fact that a dog dying kind of motivated me to write well i am fully on board for keeping the dogs happy and uh, at the at the expense of everyone else. Um, but as, as we sort of draw to a close, I'm going to head back to Wikipedia because I saw that fact about your dog on Wikipedia, right? And yeah. I'm glad I found a way back to the subject of the website because Abnormal Statistics ends with a story in the form of a Wikipedia article, which also serves as a kind of cool bookend to the opening novella. Now, I love fiction, that experiments with form like that. I always have. Ever since House of Leaves, I've just always been craving something that that mimics the form of something else and plays with text. I think it's great. Uh, but I never, ever have good ideas for how to write one. So how did you approach it? Where, where did you get the idea to create a fictitious Wikipedia page? I think it came from trying to come up with the, the name of the collection, because I was thinking back of how so many of them like basically came alive from reading Wikipedia articles and, you know, Wikipedia lists specifically about abnormal statistics and the, uh, the phrase uh, family annihilation when it leaves my brain, which is for those who don't know the act of someone destroying the, the entire family, also known as a familicide. Mm-hmm. And I, was thinking a lot of the stories were about family annihilations. And then when I looked back, I don't think any of them actually have a family annihilation in it. And I thought, well, that can't do. <laughs> I must write one. And while brainstorming ideas for what to write for this collection, it just, I don't know, it just 
at one at, at a certain point the idea of writing it as a Wikipedia article entered my brain. And once that happened, I couldn't think of anything else until I did it. And it was not easy to do because <laughs> writing in the style of a Wikipedia article, not only that, but a list and not only yeah. that, but also the edit history of that list was uh, a pain in the ass to uh, get right with the filmatting and also feel it to actually sound like a Wikipedia article and not just a story I was writing. I, I love experimental fiction. I haven't done a lot of it, so I found it a bit of a struggle, but I think I did it how I wanted it to go. And yeah, I, I, I was really excited to get to it because I say I love stuff like that. It, it just, it tweaks some part of my imagination. I, I don't, can't really articulate why, but I just love it. And I also love the trope. Possibly my favorite horror trope of all time is this trope of things like it's happened before. And a Wikipedia page is such a cool way to create a, a way to tell that story as a sort of historical trace going through time. Yeah, that aspect of it came pretty late in it because originally it was just uh, it was just various lists of unrelated uh, familicides, mm -hmm. but it, something was missing. And while looking over the collection again, I did think about uh, Indiana Death Song and how I wanted that to open the and. Um, collection and how i wanted this wikipedia one to end it and something clicked in my brain of how oh shit what if i could have that aspect of something's always this something has come back and back again and someone mm -hmm. is editing the wikipedia page to kind of give the audience the clues needed to connect the dots and that seemed really exciting to me mm. there is something uniquely scary I think about stories that mimic or play with online spaces and it because it is such an unknown anonymous realm that information comes from and we can't verify anything really it's just it's naturally scary and and it's why really good creepypastas worked so well back in the day before we pinned down the kind of parameters and I were you a fan of creepypasta when you were spending so much time online you know, it's odd. I don't think I've ever read a, a creepypasta in my life. Wow. Because you've tapped into something. Somehow I completely missed them growing up. I don't know what happened. Maybe, I mean, that was more of a Reddit thing, right? Mm. Creepypasta. Yes, it was. I, nev yeah, yeah. I, I never did Reddit until really recently when I was, I got into it to do like an AMA for something. But until then, I never had a Reddit account, really. I didn't read it often at all. So I completely mm. missed the 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 fad of creepy pastas. It's funny because in my my movie, uh, we need to do something. There's a scene in that that evidently it's really similar to a creepy pasta. And I've been like accused of ah, he was ripping off that creepy pasta. I have All no right. fucking idea what anyone's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but but well, I mean to be honest, there's a lot of shit out there to read, you know. Because I mean, No yeah. Sleep is still great, but it's now more of an overt storytelling platform. You know, it, it's moved away from that thing about where there's that kernel of doubt about what's real or not you know and that's what we can't really do anymore because we've mapped the internet better um but back in the day you know i spent years academically researching slender man 
and there's this thing called the rake which i think you would love because it's about a monster that goes back through centuries and it's it's a kind of collage of documents where some portuguese sailor from the 16th century saw it and then this thing in the 50s and it's it's the rake it's amazing but the one that i think comes closest to the tone of these stories is is a story called the russian sleep experiment okay and i will say no more oh well thank you i will look that up that sounds fun yeah <laughs> right well while we're recommending things can we finish off by you recommending a book for my listeners to read and telling us why? Yeah, so this book came out last year, and I don't think many people picked it up, and they have made a mistake. It's called The Haunting of Camp Wintel Falcon by Jonathan Rabb. It's about these vets who all go to this camp, basically, supposedly, to help with uh, PTSD and depression and substance abuse issues and so forth. But it ends up being a secret government experiment that taps into various supernatural stuff. They are using <laughs> these vets to tap into different different realms, basically. And it's fucking incredible. Jonathan Rabb, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's also a vet, and he's really, really critical, rightly so, of the U.S. government. Um, and he definitely used this book as a way to kind of uh, vet with some of his frustrations with how uh, vets are treated in the United States. And the book is just, for one thing, it's great because of that aspect. It really makes you think about things. But also, it's, just, it's a great ghost book. It's fucking awesome, and I hope way more people read it. That is The Haunting of Camp Wintel Falcon by Jonathan Rabb. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm utterly unaware of that until this very moment. And that's that's why I asked the question, because I'm always hoping someone will say something I don't know. So I will add that straight to the show notes and, and look it up and try and find the time to read it at some point in the next 10 years. But yeah, thank you. I read that Thanks. in one day. It's not even a novella. It's just a novel. But once you begin this one, you will want to do nothing else. Okay, cool. There's a book coming out this summer called The Militia House by John Milas, which sounds not dissimilar. It's about a, a, a group of vets who come back from Afghanistan and seemingly bring something with them, whether it's PTSD or whether it's something more demonic, I don't know. But it sounds like they make quite a good kind of double read, double bill. That sounds great. When mm. does that come out? That is out sometime in July, I believe. Okay. Yeah, it's... Um, it does. It has promise. But yeah, I'll definitely check out The Haunting of Camp Winter Falcon. Um, my last question, Max. What yeah. truly scares you? Uh, deja vu, I think, maybe. The uh, evil... I mean, I, I have this a lot. Maybe you do. I assume everyone does of like a specific moment happening to you. And mm -hmm. even the same dialogue, you just stop and you become convinced this has happened. They have said this. I have felt the same way. And not only that, but last time it happened, I also realized it happened then. And then you become <laughs> yeah. convinced you're living in this fucking like time loop. That skills the shit out of me. And I have no idea how to recreate that in fiction, but it's really frightening. How much of that do you think goes back to the Truman Show and thinking things aren't real? I mean, at this point, everything in my life goes back to the Truman Show. <laughs> That is a great fear. Uh, and my last question, Max, is what truly scares you? 
I mean, honestly, probably deja vu. I mean, have you ever like? I mean, everyone's had this moment, right? Will they? Will <laughs> sit, will, something happens. Someone says something, and and you'll like, wait a second. This exact moment has happened. That Pilsen has said that, and I've had that same emotion. Absolutely spot on. Couldn't agree more. And my last question, Max, is. <laughs> Listen, my listen. second greatest my second greatest feel is uh, going on a time loop on a podcast <laughs> cold, my, that's my greatest fear sometimes it feels like I'm in one honestly when I'm editing this podcast that is the time loop to be afraid of six hours at looking at looking at audacity just going slowly mad listen we've uh, we've managed to end a conversation about some incredibly bleak things on a laugh to which I I give you credit more than me. Abnormal Statistics is out already. If people want to get really messed up and have the best bad time, then I think people should read it. Tread very carefully because it does not pull its punches or suck its teeth. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed it, if that's the right word. But, but for now, Max Booth, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. I hope the tinkling of Max's dog's collar didn't freak you out at the end. I did consider mentioning that in the intro, then I thought, nah, let them wonder if it's the jingling of loose teeth they can hear. <laughs> um, I really, really enjoyed this collection. Listening back, I think I may have made a bit too much of the warning about how awful it is. It is, don't get me wrong, some of these tales are utterly dark and unremittingly bleak, but I think I'm often so worried about people being upset or taken off guard that I forget this is a horror podcast, and the vast majority of listeners, I imagine, are here for the darkness as much as the light, so I really need to stop patronising you guys, and I need to judge warnings accordingly. Let, let me know what you think, that's probably the best guide going forwards. Um, if you do want some treacle dark stories then abnormal statistics will suit you to a t they are weird they go in unusual unpredictable directions but not in a way that dints their impact as weirdness so often can for me i know that i've recommended the book pen pal by dathan auerbach on this show before and if you haven't read that definitely read that and Max's stories here feel very apiece with that novel. Again, it's it's the grimness, but also that creepypasta vibe, like little modern urban legends or contemporary campfire tales. And we touched on a few of them in this conversation. Indiana Death Song, the opening novella about the teeth and the hotel, that's the one that's probably going to grab all the attention. I think, but there are other gems here too. I particularly liked the closing Wikipedia-style story, plus one that we didn't mention called Scraps, about a guy working a night shift who meets some very odd, very hungry children. And I meant to ask Max about how it was inspired by his time working the night shift at a hotel, because that's a job I've always thought sounded great for both writing time and story inspiration. Adam Neville did the same job and turned it into his book, Apartment 13, which, for me, is perhaps the best of his books. If anyone out there has worked a night shift at a hotel or, or anything, please tell me your weirdest incident, 
because they make great stories. Um, to that end, anyone who wants to can get in touch easily. Email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, Twitter or maybe TikTok at talkscaredpod. I've got a lot of new listeners recently, so please, if you get this far into the show, come say hi. And you can prove it by using the code words uh, Teeth Suckers Anonymous. I'm going to look for that on Twitter. <laughs> if you do like the show, please leave a review. They tend to come in fits and starts, and we're currently in whichever one of those means not many. Which is it? A fit or a start? Could be either. Either way, leave a review saying how much you love this show because it really, really helps. And once again, there's the Patreon. The link's in the show notes or just go to patreon.com talking scared pod for literally loads of bonus stuff. It costs a few dollars or pounds a month and there's a back catalogue of over 40 hours of stuff so far and it's increasing. Right, it's always a relief to get through the admin part of the show. Thanks for your patience. I'm back next week with another massive name. It's a friend of Margaret Atwood and writer of the single best short story I've read in years. It's Kelly Link. Absolutely not an episode to miss. Until then, brush your teeth after every meal, floss and limit your browsing to one serial killer per day. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>